Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1969. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. The CDC says, go home right away. The movie, Easy Rider. everybody and welcome to unspooled. unspooled i'm mimi nicholson and i am paul Shear, and this is a podcast where we watch a film from the afi top 100 list and we see if the film is as good as people say does it hold up and how has it influenced the filmmakers of today uh today we'll be talking about the counterculture classic easy rider but before we get into that we are going to go back to last week where we watched Selvin's Travels and hear what you had to say about this great Preston Sturgis film. I mean, people were universally in love with this film, right, Amy? People adored this film. And I actually just realized that we're going from one road trip movie to another road trip movie. I love it. Yeah, no, Sullivan's has a ton of love. And again, if there was any problem with the full on amount of love that people needed to push on the AFI list, it's just that people love Preston Sturgis so much. And made really compelling arguments for every other Preston Sturgis film that they feel like should also be on the list. I mean, he is beloved. We need at least one seems to be the absolute dead certain consensus. But it doesn't seem like people have that one figured out. It's it's a really debatable thing. You know, we talked about how much we love A Lady Eve. So many people echoed that. Also, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek is a big one that people really got behind. It's interesting. There's a lot of passion for people's favorites. It's it's a. Uh, it's kind of a rare argument. We don't really always see that in these boards where people are all over the board about what the best one is. Yeah, absolutely. And it was really fun to um, hear from people who had never seen the movie before. People like longtime listener, hello, Tracy Walker, who said that she was really surprised when she finally sat down to watch Sullivan's Travels that Veronica Leake was this charming, that she always imagined Veronica Leake was this femme fatale, which you would absolutely get from seeing, you know, likenesses of her when Kim Basinger was playing that version of her in Hollywood Confidential. And to see Veronica Lake be charming, to see her be funny, to see what a comedian she was, to me, that was one of the favorite things I read on the comment boards this year. It was just this love for Veronica Lake and this sadness that her career didn't turn out better. Yeah, I mean, uh, time and time again, we come up against this idea that like these amazing women 
don't often have this career that they deserve because they are actually kind of outspoken and just sort of not give up, but just say, fuck y'all. You know, I mean, they kind of just live by their own path. And sometimes that affects them negatively. And sometimes uh, they're able to rebound. Like someone like Catherine Hepburn had that attitude, but also was able to stay very much in the Hollywood scene. Yeah. Well, she was rich. <laughs> she could be <laughs> like, whatever. There you go. Well, I mean, but so uh, but so was Grace Kelly. And she was like, later. Like, you know, yeah. she, I mean, I guess I guess the idea is like, if you don't need them to write you a check, you can do whatever you want. Um, yeah. It, it, leave or stay. Um, I wanted to talk to you about this thing that Benny Haste wrote. Now, Benny wrote, uh, and this is something that I, I, I said on the show last week, that I compared uh, Sturgis against Wilder. And he said, that's a tough one to compute. He said, master craftsman versus philosophical filmmaker. Um, do you agree with that? That like Sturgis and Wilder, like one's a master craftsman and the other is a philosophical filmmaker? I mean, I don't, I mean, I guess he's saying that Billy Wilder is the master craftsman. And Preston Sturges is the philosophical. Oh, sorry. And Preston Sturges is the philosophical uh, filmmaker. I mean, is or, or, or am I reading that wrong? You know, it's interesting because I feel like Wilder is both, right? Or Wilder right. has been through all of them himself, and I think Preston Sturges too. Yeah. I mean, Benny went on to say that he feels like Sturges and Capra make a really interesting co- like comparison to him. I agree with which that. Which yeah. I feel like that one you can see really clearly. You know, Capra I think deeply believes in this country, and Sturges is like ah. Let's make fun of it. Right. And, and I, I appreciate that about their comparisons, because to me, they are both signature American filmmakers in a way that Billy Wilder really isn't. You know, if we're talking about the people who define this country, especially in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, I mean, Sturgis and Capra really are the kings. And, you know, I think that uh, Benny goes on to say that I was right at the end when I compared Sturgis and Hughes. And I, and I think that that feels uh, right to me and it kind of came just as a, a later thought as we were talking about it, because I think also John Hughes captures a bit of America, but also is, is subverting it too. It's, it's kind of uh, just showing you a different side of it, whether it is uh, the breakfast club. I mean, there's a, there's an article, I mean, not an article, but there's an argument to be made also with like Capra and John Hughes too. It's sort of like this idea of like, it is overly positive, but also shows you sort of the, the darker side. There's some dark comedy and all that stuff too. Yeah, I could see that. I think if you had to figure out which one of those people he was aligns with, I would definitely agree with you. I think it's definitely Capra for sure. You know, if there was one complaint about this film, it was sort of this uh, notion of how Hollywood portrays the people that they are putting in a category of being poor, you know, and um, Nick Johnson just said, you know, I'm always interested in this rich pretends to be poor films like movies like Life Stinks with like Mel Brooks. And and then um, also somebody brought up a really good point about uh, the way that they portray uh, poor people in this film. Andy Utek said, you know, I wish they would deal properly with hobos. In my limited understanding, there was a time when thousands of folks got by on migrant work, traveling on the rails from one geographic area to another. Um, they generally rejected capitalism and avoided ladder climbing. Ultimately, their way of life became uh, a problem, and hobos and tramps had to be reclassified from charming scamps to untrustworthy homeless. And there's a lot there, and I think it would make a fine doc, if not a feature. And I, you know, that's really interesting, especially coming off of uh, Cesar Chavez Day last week. This idea of like, you know, how we view migrant workers, how we, you know, view people that don't fit into our society. And we're going to talk about that today in Easy Rider, too, people who live outside the culture a little bit. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I, I appreciate that Andy was kind of reframing it um, from maybe the way Hollywood would see 
people on trains, I was like desperate or sad to like making a political stance in a way or, you know, choosing to live outside the mainstream or at least figuring out a way of doing it on their own terms with a bit of dignity. And it, and it kind of reminded me of something that Wendy Wagner also said. You know, Wendy Wagner said that when she saw that scene um, where you have Sullivan and Veronica Lake on the train and Sullivan's trying to talk to the men on the train about how they feel about labor and capitalism, she said it reminded her a lot of Zora Neale Houston's autobiography. And that um, Zora was saying that when she was trying to research folk music in the American South, like in the 1930s, she said, this is from Zora, she said, quote, my first six months were disappointing, and I found out later it wasn't because I had no talent for research, but because I didn't have the right approach. She, cut, she, she went to Barnard College, and she said that when she went around, she went about asking in carefully accented Barnardese, pardon me, but do you know any folk songs or folk tales? And that the men who knew everything about it had treasuries of material in their heads just looked at her and said no. And, and, <laughs> and yeah, that idea of like, how do you approach somebody to tell their story? And like, we, we talk about who gets to tell stories, but I think it's interesting to point out who even figures out how to get a story and what you have to put down in terms of 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 your approach in order to really understand. I love that. And I think that that's something that I think we are aspiring to do now or we are opening our film lens a little bit wider to let different voices really tell their own stories. Um, and, you know, whether that is something that is just intensely personal to you or something that is culturally relevant, I I, I love that idea that, you know, we right now, I mean, how far it's taken us to get to this point, but we are, we have widened that lens, especially in the last three or four years, uh, which is kind of exciting, uh, but long overdue. Hey, so Amy, before we get into today's movie, I want to remind people that we did a very special live streaming episode. It's uh, called An Unspooled Spool Party, where we're kind of focusing on fun, bigger films. Uh, the first episode we did was big, and we did it live and streaming on YouTube. And you can watch it right now. Uh, we had Lauren Lapkus and Jensen Karp pop in. We're going to do another one this coming Monday, um, which is the 13th, Monday the 13th, not to the dreaded Friday the 13th, Monday the 13th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, you can watch us as we talk about the film Clueless. I'm so excited to talk about Clueless. This has been something that we've been talking about uh, before we taped the show a lot, like wanting to do this sh uh, this movie on this uh, show. So we're going to get a chance to get deep into Clueless and how it relates to even films like Emma and uh, and other kind of adaptations that change the change the narrative a little bit. I'm excited, Paul. I cannot wait. Uh, the Unspooled Spool Party. Watch our first one on YouTube, and the new one will be uh, streaming live. You can watch it live with us at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, next Monday the 13th on the Earwolf YouTube channel. All right, so Amy, we are, uh, or many of us, are right now uh, hashtag stay home. And, um, and this movie that we're going to be talking about today, Easy Rider, is about going out on the open road having an adventure um, and meeting people and, and kind of finding a new place to lay your head every night. And since we can't do that, we wanted to reach out to you and say, if you could go out on the open road, where would you go? And what celebrity would you take with you? So uh, let's take a listen to what people have to say. Hi, this is Trevor from St. Louis, Missouri. I would love to go with Keanu Reeves to Glacier National Park. We'd just be out on the beautiful, beautiful mountainous territory, taking it all in. I would go on the overseas highway through the Florida Keys to Key West, and I would take with me Veronica Lake. You convinced me that she would be a blast. If I was going on a road trip, 
I would get on my hog and I'd go down to Aspen and I would take the actor, character actor, Mike Starr with me because Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels killed him and he deserved to finish that trip. Whoa, those are good. I like these. I love those, man. I want to go on all of those trips. I want to go on every trip. I wonder if Keanu Reeves is good at fishing. I, I also just like the shout out to uh, character actor Mike Starr. Uh, I, I like that he's taking Mike Starr with him, even though his character died. Mike Starr is alive, but he just wants to make sure that Mike Starr, the, the character or the actor, <laughs> is continuing his journey. I don't know, but I love it all. Uh, very, very uh, fun stuff. Um, all right. So, Amy, are you ready to talk about our feature presentation? Boy, am I ever. Well, great. Then it's time to unspool it, man. I'm walking here. It's 1969. James Brown releases seven different songs about popcorn. That's Low Down Popcorn, Popcorn with a Feeling, Mashed Potato Popcorn, The Popcorn, Let a Man Come In and Do the Popcorn, Parts 1 and 2, and Mother Popcorn. Headlines boast The Moon Landing, The Manson Murders, The Inauguration of Nixon, Nearly 90% of American school children walk to school. Debuting on TV are Scooby-Doo, Monty Python's Flying Circus, and Sesame Street. The popular books are The Very Hungry Caterpillar, Mario Puzo's The Godfather, and Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. The big movies of the year are Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Midnight Cowboy, Hello, Dolly, and today's film, Easy Rider. Rated number 84 on the 2007 AFI list, up from its other position of 88. UFO beaming back at you. Me and Eric Heisman was down in Mexico two weeks ago. We seen 40 of them flying in formation. They, 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 they have got bases all over the world now, you know. They've been coming here ever since 1946, when the scientists first started bouncing radar beams off of the moon. And they have been living and working among us in vast quantities ever since. The government knows all about them. What are you talking, man? Mm. Well, you just seen one of them, didn't you? Hey, man, I saw something, man, but I didn't see it working here. You know what I mean? Well, they are people just like us from within our own solar system. Except that their society is more highly evolved. I mean, they don't have no wars, they got no monetary system, they don't have any leaders, because, I mean, each man is a leader. I mean, each man, because of their technology, they are able to feed, clothe, house, and transport themselves equally and with no effort. Amy, Easy Rider, who's in it? What's it about? Easy Rider! It stars Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper as Wyatt and Billy. Two guys who start the film doing this cocaine deal, selling some cocaine to Phil Spector of all people, so that they can afford to take a road trip across America in search of America. That's really kind of like a search to go party at Mardi Gras. Um, and what happens along the way is they meet people who differ- who represent different little parts of America and get beaten down literally by the system. They meet people like Jack Nicholson and Karen Black and Tony Mother F and Basil from Oh Mickey, You're So Fine. It's also uh, directed by Dennis Hopper and written by him, written by Fonda, and written really by Terry Southern, who says he did most of the work. And Terry Southern, the other co-writer of Dr. Strangelove, right? But you hear so many stories about this movie, and the one that I hear all the time is that there is no full script, okay? They made it up, 
as they went along. Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda just, you know, were winging it. They didn't hire a crew. They just picked up hippies at communes across the country. They used friends and passerbys to hold the cameras. They were drunk. They were stoned. You know, this movie was made with the energy of the two characters in it. And I can't really figure out where the line of that is real and where it's not. You know, did they smoke 155 joints during the campfire scene? Like, you talk to somebody, they say they did. You talk to somebody else, like, no way. You know, it's like, what What do you think is true about this movie, Amy? Or will we never know? <gasps> That's so funny because the way you're describing it, I'm like, it makes perfect sense that this movie that is about the American myth uh, is itself completely mythological. We have no idea what's true in this and what isn't, right? Everybody was high the whole time, probably. And so none of none of the people involved have the same memory. And it seems like there are a lot of arguments after the fact. Who had the most percentage when this film became a gigantic mega hit? Like, who got the credit? Who got the money? It made $60 million at this time. That is shockingly high for a movie that is very niche. Yeah, and I think it was made for about... $400,000 is the number that you usually hear, which is a number that Peter Fonda came up with just because he'd been working with Roger Corman and Roger Corman was like, yeah, you can make a movie for about that. And he was like, great. And then they spent twice that budget just getting all of the songs because this is one of those movies a couple years after The Graduate where it's just wall to wall jukebox classics. Here we go. Here are the jams. You want to hear a little bit of this? You want to hear a little bit of that? We got it all going on the soundtrack. It's really like watching two dudes on a motorcycle with the jukebox from a dive bar going on in the background. Yeah, this movie really has the imprint of what I think I recognize as independent cinema. It feels, at points, incredibly masturbatory, and then at other points, like an incredible masterpiece. Like, there are so many wonderful, beautiful, eye-opening moments. There is this sense of, like, this is a movie that is made by the people in the film. It doesn't feel like it's the outside, you know, it doesn't feel like Sullivan's travels. It, it, it is the the story of the people living this counterculture life. And I, I'm, I'm kind of like blown away by it. And I'm also like, it feels a little loosey goosey too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what I, one of the things that I find so striking about it is, I mean, how Dennis Hopper managed to tell so many giant tall tales about how rough it was to get this film made and how many arguments there were that he was winding up even getting sued about it, like up to the 90s. Yes. Because, yeah, like, well, for one example, Hopper wanted Rip Torn to play the Jack Nicholson part, but that when they sat down to hang out and talk about it, Hopper kept talking about rednecks this and rednecks that. And Rip Torn, who's from Texas, was like, stop calling my state full of rednecks. As a Texan, I appreciate that he stood up for it. And then depending on who you ask, Somebody pulled a knife on somebody else. This is actually Dennis Hopper talking about it years later on Jay Leno. Yeah, now, uh, Rip and I had a little uh, problem. We what kind little, of problem? Well, at dinner, he pulled a knife on me. He thought I was, <laughs> uh, I was cutting him out of the picture, as he put it. Uh, before, we were just writing, and at the time, he decided that the script wasn't really Now, is that correct. the best way to settle an argument with the director? If he's cutting, I mean, if he cut you out of the picture before... Somehow knifing the director seems like yeah. it would pretty much end Well, it was, it, was, uh, it was one way for me to say we're not working together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty easy. <laughs> now, do you know these guys too, Crosby, Stills? There's sort of a theme to yeah, the show. Yeah, there is. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, boy, do we know each other. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I let that play a little 
long just because the, yeah, we know each other is so much the Mariah Carey, I don't know her, of 90s <laughs> being on Jay Leno. But yeah, apparently when Rip Torn heard Dennis Hopper say that he pulled a knife on him on Jay Leno, Rip Torn got so mad that he sued Dennis Hopper for half a million dollars and won. We also know that famous footage of Rip Torn running around with Norman Mailer, like, with like hatchets or hammers, like beating the shit out of each other. So again, a guy like Dennis Hopper, who is just seem seemingly in a drug induced state for this entire film. Like uh, he was like having these terrible interactions with the crew. The crew was leaving because he was yelling at them because he was going through uh, withdrawal at certain points. So who knows where his memory is? Also a rip torn just seems like an insane person, but I would love to have been a fly on the wall at that trial, especially if both of them testified. <laughs> I know. I mean, we, we've talked so much in the past. We were talking about Marlon, about method acting. And it feels like mm -hmm. this was definitely a method directed film that Dennis Hopper, who was a huge fan of, of method acting of, of James Dean. I have a clip of him talking about James Dean, actually. Um, yeah, let me play this and I'll talk to you a little bit about like how obsessive Dennis Hopper was about James Dean and about being a method type of performer. I, until I saw James Dean at 18, I knew that I was the best actor pound for pound anywhere in the world, young actor in my mind that I was convinced of that until I saw Dean work. And he was doing things that was totally out of my league. I had no idea. I had done Shakespeare at the Old Globe Theater. My background was classical, and, and I gave great line readings and uh, appeared to be very natural and very naturalistic. But it was, all, it was all preconceived. It was all like thought out things. And I saw Dean improvising and doing things that were just not on the printed page, and I didn't know what he was doing, and he was doing it different every time. So finally, I'd had it on the Chicky Run, and he wouldn't talk to me, so I grabbed him and I threw him into a car. And I threatened him. Into a him. car? Into a car. Into an, a car, and I threatened him and so on and to tell him that I was the best young actor, but he, he was better, and I had to know what he was doing or else, you know? Yeah. And so uh, <clears throat> he calmed me down, and he said, well, you've got to start doing things and not showing them. And I said, well, I don't know, what does that mean, do something and don't show it? And he said, well, if you're drinking a cup of coffee, you've got to just drink drink the coffee, not act drinking the coffee. You've oh. got to really drink the coffee. And he said it'll be very difficult at first because you'll be very self-conscious about it. But, you know, you just got to drink it. Or if you're smoking a cigarette, you got to smoke the cigarette, not act smoking the cigarette. But what if you have to kill your wife, assuming you're not O.J. Simpson? Mm -hmm. Suppose you're playing Othello. <laughs> uh, then it helps to be O.J. Simpson. No. Ah, bada bing, wow. bada boom. But no, I was just reading this book about the history. Of, you know, the Chateau Marmont here, here in L.A., mm -hmm. fancy, yeah. ancient, hundred-year-old hotel. There's some stories in that in there from the making of Rebel Without a Cause. And Dennis Hopper is there stalking James Dean. He's like 18 years old. He'd driven up from San Diego and he's like peering in through all the windows of the Chateau Marmont, trying to get between James Dean and Natalie Wood and the Rebel Without a Cause director, Nicholas Ray, who put him in the film in like kind of a silent part. Mm. And apparently one of the other people who was hanging out with them was Vampira, you know, that beautiful like yeah, TV hostess. Yes. And she would just get mad at Dennis Hopper. And she told him, for God's sake, don't be so San Diego because he had no chill. <laughs> <laughs> he also started to carry a gun around um, the Chateau Marmont because he got really mad that Nicholas Ray was allegedly sleeping with Natalie Wood when he wanted to be sleeping with Natalie Wood. It's a whole thing. I mean, so I think he took that was him like over a decade before he made this movie. And he brought that craziness here. He just he's been he was ready to go. 
doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Not to kind of jump ahead, but I think as we're talking about craziness and we're talking about improvisation and just doing and being, one of the most powerful sequences in the film is after they go uh, to the the house of the prostitutes, uh, and I call it the house of the prostitutes. I feel like you whorehouses. Said yeah, your whorehouse feels so uh, Maison, maison yeah. de women. Well, I would say maison de femme. Um, maison de femme. Uh, when they go out to Mardi Gras. Like that entire sequence through the cemetery uh, is, I think, one of the most eye-opening, interesting parts of this film because it feels so alive. It feels so down and dirty. They're stealing shots. They're on the street. They're in character. They're having these interactions. um, And the LSD trip feels, uh, you know, it's shot in this amazing way, but it just feels like the actors are not acting or they're being edited to remove the more acting moments and they're catch they're catching them in these real uh, these real moments and i think that one soliloquy that uh, peter fonda is doing to the statue about you know uh i think he was talking about like how his mother committed suicide when he was a child and he's doing that there but that to me that sequence is in many respects one of the most redeeming interesting mind-blowing parts of this film I, I really did enjoy this film i'm just saying but that that sequence is like whoa i'm on the edge of my seat now just going like this this is crazy they're there and you're you're looking at real people and it just it just feels alive and you're not used to seeing that outside of docs no you're right like when that footage changes when they get on the street and it becomes like grittier and it starts to look more like an actual documentary and you can tell they're like getting policemen and parade goers who probably did not sign away their rights to be an easy rider. No. And then they go to that cemetery and this whole movie is just haunted with cemeteries from the very beginning to the very end. All you see is like burials. You hear people talking about where people used to be buried. You see tombstones, really the first thing that you see when you cross the border, even into Louisiana, it's just graveyard, 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 these graves, like haunting these people kind of foretelling the death. And then they're in this graveyard having a bad trip. Um, which looks terrifying as a person who probably, I will say I did illegal things in Oklahoma and the idea of having a bad trip like that seems absolutely (laughs) like my nightmare. I want to listen to that. And then as we're kind of listening, like just picture in your head, you know, 
how you've got this like fisheye lens going in and out, how people are stripping off their clothes. It's amazing that there's so much nudity in this movie and yet you don't actually see anything that's real nudity. It's like, it's yeah. amazing they somehow pull that off. Then you've got, you're like zooming into the sun. There's all these tree branches. I mean, it's basically a 90s grunge music video, which I don't think I realized how much Alice in Chains was influenced by the cemetery scene here. I mean, I love this sequence. And what you're talking about is this herky-jerky time cuts and time shifts and flash forwards and flashbacks and, you know, this fractured narrative. It's, it's all this movie is doing in flashes throughout. Like this movie, I feel like they made this choice to do these like a close-up of a watch. Uh, you know, all of a sudden just music is coming in. The movie starts. It just starts. And the movie also just ends. And and it feels very much like it is trying to capture the the a trip, you know, uh like right? not a not a physical trip, but like a, a, a psychedelic trip. It it's it is this everything's kind of coming at you and you can make sense of it in your own way. And I think that sequence is and as this is such a hackneyed thing. Like, how do you show people being high? I always go back to, I love, uh, I believe it's 40-year-old virgin where they go to like um, Las Vegas and they go to see like the Beatles show. And it's like, it's just so lame how they are high because uh, movies often try to make it like, whoa, I smoked weed and my hand is, uh, you know, it's like, it's so heightened and i feel like this is what people are trying to capture like how do you capture that experience on film and the jaggedness of this does such a great job it, it's uh and that's where the, i think the directing or the editing of this is really blows me away yeah right i mean can you imagine going to the movie theater in 1969 and having this and the wild bunch come out and suddenly just what you knew as linear time in a movie being so just run through a food processor like this and I feel like Wild Bunch really set a tone and people copied that style. They didn't so much copy the style here where you're like, you know, they're sitting by um, the motel and they start getting these like cuts forward to like the future, to what's going to happen. It's like, boom, 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 boom. It's almost like the movie is stuttering or like they're coming up from a drug coma and they're blinking and the world's coming back into focus. Well, yeah, I like this. And that's what I love about even how the movie begins. Who are these characters? There's no setup. We're just in it. We're like, we are, we are jumping out of an airplane right into this film and the whole beginning is in spanish there's no translations you're just kind of playing catch up the entire time you don't understand what the goal is where they're going and i love that you know that idea like like a trip and not to get like too i hate like talking in a lofty way about getting high but like the idea of like the trip just begins you don't know when it's going to begin it begins and then it just ends you know it's like and that's how this movie has this this vibe to it and in 1969 not only is it capturing something that a majority of americans or a lot of americans are experiencing for their first time too uh or embracing that 
that lifestyle. But it's also saying something about where the country is headed. We're ending 69, going into 70. And you talked about like death and graves. And this movie is about death. It's about the death that you live if you don't live free, if you live in a city, if you if you settle down, if you even stay in a hotel, if you like, you know, it's like these ideas of like what it is, you know, what kind of controls your spirit. And that best scene is, you know, or one of the best scenes is the Jack Nicholson campfire scene about like, are we free? You know, what, you know, who are we? The second campfire scene when they, uh, after they kind of get kicked out of that town, which I feel like is straight out of a uh, last picture show. I mean, I feel like for Fonda, at least he also definitely knew this. I mean, Fonda is a guy who, yeah, as you mentioned, his mom kills herself. You know, his mom being, you know, the wife of Henry Fonda kills herself in a mental institution. She slices her own throat when he's a kid. And then the next year, the next year when he's 11, he shoots himself in the stomach on accident and almost dies. Oh, you know, he lived by the edge of death. He actually, I think, you know, the Beatles song that's like, she said, I know what it's like to be dead. That one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Apparently that is inspired by Peter Fonda talking about what it was like to almost die when he was 11. And then he grows up, he does LSD that's prescribed to him by his psychiatrist to try to deal with his own emotional angst that's happening. He seems to, by the way, small tangent. I mean, I love that we are going from 12 Angry Men, Papa Fonda, to Wild Bunch Fonda, and that these films are not that far apart, really. And yeah. it's just both of these men show up on screen like they're these idealized Fondas for different generations, right? Like one of them is like, this like saintly archetype of what it's like to be a great proper member of a functioning democracy. And the other one is a saintly archetype of what it's like to be a person who represents the fact that our country's falling apart. Yeah. Well, it, it's sort of like the rules that we exist in, the society we exist in is broken and it will never be fixed. And the only way to fix it is to leave it. You know, there's a great interview uh, with the daily camera where Peter Fonda described uh, his father, Henry watching the film. He said, you know, I had him come down see an early cut and my dad watched it. And then I went over to his house the next day and uh, he was very serious. He said, look, son, I know you have all your eggs in this basket and I'm worried about it because the film is inaccessible. We don't see where you're going and why. I just don't think many people will get it. And even after it was successful, he thought, you know, that his son was just this loose cannon until he said uh, one day when he was able to direct his dad, he under his dad finally understood like, oh no, it's this organized chaos. And uh, I thought that was really interesting though, because talking about the reaction to this film, what makes it so impressive that it made $60 million is that is the youth coming out to see this movie. That's not the people that are seeing Hello Dolly, like which is another movie that comes out this year. This is like, I think where the youth starts dictating that we have needs that need to be met and they can't be met in these four quadrant films. Like this is not, and I may have all my dates wrong, but like the West side stories, this is, this is something we can make a movie that can appeal to a small section of people and it could work. And I think that that's really exciting for cinema and it opens up all these amazing doors in the seventies. You know, you're right. Cause we're still like, this comes out right at that tail end of the future that sound of music hath wrought, you know, Make these giant blockbusters. Everybody's going to go. You're going to make a bazillion dollars and everybody tries to duplicate the sound of music success and it mostly doesn't work and they're bankrupt. And this is this is the future, you know, for them making a film that's outside of studio control. And it, I mean, I'm curious how you feel about the Peter Fonda performance. I, I'm going to say something. Don't get mad at me. I feel like in what? most of the- uh, ah! 
I feel like in most of the other Peter Fonda movies I've ever seen, I don't think he's that great of an actor. I'm going to just whisper that quietly. No, you know what? I will say that there are performances that I love from Peter Fonda, and then there are performances that I think are just uh, going through the motions or something. There's something I don't connect with. I mean, I, uh, you know, there, yeah, I go back and forth. I loved him in The Limey. I think The Limey is a yeah. great uh, role. Uh, but yeah, there's there, there's some highs and lows. Highs and lows. You like yeah. him in Wild Hogs, I imagine. Oh, oh, I'm going to play some Wild Hogs. Listen, <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that. Speaking of a biker just pulled by on my street. Good timing. Um, but yeah, here, I mean, I think even though I would consider him one of our weaker Natalie Wood-ish actors, um, he has this quiet composure and gravity that really carries. I cannot stop staring at him in this movie. I can't stop staring at his perfect teeth. And the fact that the movie starts off the way that it is, like, yeah, first scene is in Spanish. Second scene where they're selling drugs to Phil Spector, you can't even hear anything he says because it's drowned out by airplanes. The movie right away is telling you, doesn't even matter what they say. Doesn't even care. These guys aren't like quipsters. These guys aren't funny. Their dialogue doesn't really matter. It's their presence and their act of being and the way they move. And also I wonder if there's a little bit of like, maybe you would like Peter Fonda less if you saw him negotiating over money. Like maybe Peter Fonda was like, no, 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 give me another, give me another couple bucks. Like you'd be like, oh, it doesn't make a difference though. That's, that's the thing. Like commerce doesn't make a difference. This movie is like, who cares? The idea is like, they're just off on this journey. It's in a weird way, like a, like a wizard of Oz stoner. It's like, we're off to see we're off to be free. Like they're just going through the country. They're experiencing different types of people. And they're basically, you know, they're kind of, we're in Wizard of Oz. Like, oh my gosh, look at this, a flying monkey. Oh my gosh, look at this. You know, candy houses. There it's like looking at them. Candy houses. uh, (laughs) I feel like the munchkins had like lollipop shields and stuff. Oh yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, is there a living Candyland movie? Because I Oh no, no. There's some, there's some lollipop guild in there. Um, You know, there's this, there's a fascination with the world. And here it's like a wizard of Oz where you're going through and being like, Oh my God, I'm so happy. I'm not here. And I'm not here. And I'm not here. You know, it's like there, there's no end, you know, for these characters, there's no wizard. They're just, they're just going to keep on going, you know, and it's, there's something, it's a road movie without a destination and really without a reason. I mean, or at least that we're not privy to, we don't really know, you know, they're going to live off this money that's in the gas tank, I guess. You know, they want to get to Mardi Gras, I guess. It doesn't feel like Mardi Gras is the end. It just feels like Mardi Gras is a stop. And the, and if they didn't, you know, have that unfortunate demise at the end, they would keep on going. And it almost feels like their end is that they can't, they are such a threat to this world that they will be snuffed out. I mean, that's the idea. Like they're, they're constantly on the run from, from society. Society wants to snuff out like individual voices, which is like kind of the masturbatory thing for me. It's like, we're so fucking unique. People can't handle us. And, you know, and then I'm like, all right, I, I go back and forth on that. Like, I, I feel like it's a little sure. Okay. I guess. Am I wrong <laughs> in that? I mean, but it's very lofty. And that's why I feel like the masturbatory thing is like, we're doing it the right way. And, and they want to kill us because they're so afraid of us. And I think there's an element of that, but I also don't think it's, I don't know. I, I, am I, am I totally? No, right? no, no, no. The, they hate us because they ain't us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a bit in here of Peter Fonda, a difference between the men. Like, they're both named for Wild West heroes. Billy the Kid is Ennis Hopper. Um, Wyatt Earp is Peter Fonda. And so there is this sense of them kind of like traveling 
this mythic America. I mean, one of the things they first do when they stop is like they look at all this wreckage of an old car and it looks like they're basically driving by Bonnie and Clyde's old car or something. Yeah. You know? yeah There's yeah, already yeah. this like wreckage of the future near not so distant American past and like layering these two guys over the cowboy movie. You know, they're going to be fixing the flat tire on their bike right while a real cowboy is fixing his horseshoe. And they're going to just like hammer home these parallels between these two types of lifestyles by having them in the same shot. I mean, even even going through the parade, like we're no like, you know, like they don't care about the parade, like, you know, like they're in the parade, but they're not part of the parade. Like this idea of like, we're we're the thing that you don't want, but we are here. You must pay attention to us. You must look at us, even though you don't want to. You would you'd want to, you know, excise us from this story. And, you know, there is I don't know. There's something very interesting. I mean, but, but it is interesting that. I feel like Peter Fonda can blend, right? I mean, he's Captain mm-hmm. America. He's got the American flag on his. I mean, my God, the first time they, that the camera really looks at his bike, right? It's like, ooh, pan up the bike. Look at the gas yeah. tank. Look at that curvy seat. Look at the helmet. Look at the handlebars. I mean, it basically shoots his bike the way that I, it made me think of Double Indemnity and how we see Barbara Stanwyck. They're like, ooh, it's her feet. Let's go all up there. It was like, it's a sexy, sexy bike shot. But he can blend. I feel like Peter Fonda can get by. It's Dennis Hopper who doesn't fit anywhere. Whereas I think Peter Fonda is trying to, he's looking for a home. Like when they meet the cowboy and he's saying like, I kind of, I admire the way that you're living. No, I mean it. You've got a nice place. It's not every man that can live off the land, you know. Do your own thing in your own time. You should be proud. It's interesting that idea, like he is the person maybe who is experiencing the most, like Dennis Hopper's mind is made up and Peter Fonda can kind of go either way. And he's kind of dipping his toe in here and there. He's, you know, he's more reticent of the two. And I think when you bring Jack Nicholson in, he's the most um, normalized of the three. Uh, You know, so it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's like, here's somebody living in society. Here's someone one foot in, one foot out, and then there's another person both feet far out of society. No, you're right. And honestly, when you look at Dennis Hopper, even though he's such a wild man in this environment, like in the late 60s, he basically looks like how Davy Crockett looked, you know, 150 years ago. He's not that different from who we think of as like the Americans who made our country what it is. I mean, that fringed outfit he's wearing, like John Wayne used to wear that outfit. John Wayne used to wear that outfit in movies. Like it's not too far off but this movie is playing with the context. Well, let's talk about it from this point of view. Disneyland opens, you know, uh, in the 60s. And one of the most popular things when Disneyland is opening is this, uh, you know, the wonderful world of Disney TV show where everyone's dressed up like Davy Crockett. That's the, that's the style of the 50s and 60s. So it's sort of like, it's in a weird way, it's, it is kind of like embracing this other thing. Maybe it's even like the way that we dress now you know, when you dress like and you're wearing like a bangle shirt or like a Saved by the Bell, you know, hoodie or something like that. Like <laughs> it's kind of embracing our, 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 you know, our past in a way, you know, not to say that he was dressing like David Crockett, but I think there was like a little bit, maybe that character did dress like that when he was a kid. I don't know. There was something I was thinking about that when I, cause I read this book about Disney and I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a little bit element of that. Like this is a kid who dressed like that as a kid and now is a little bit older. He's like, I am that. I'm not even dressing like that. I am it. Yeah. I mean, there's probably people right now who dress like 
there not probably there are people who dress like Captain America right now as adults and go into the world. It, yeah, it's a bit of play of dress up. Is it okay if I take a tiny amount of pride in the fact that Davy Crockett died in my hometown? I'm from San Antonio. Um, We're very proud of this. All right. Well, I guess I mean sure. Enjoy it. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. That that death. Thank you. <laughs> I think I think I will. Speaking about this whole. Um, comparison between like Easy Rider and this type of modern Western with, with John Wayne. I mean, I feel like we keep talking about this year's Oscars. It also mm-hmm. being the whole year of Midnight Cowboy, of people trying to look at a new version of the West or dressing up like the West. And this is, of course, the year where... They are exploring the West. I mean, the, they, are, they are like, they're coming into society or like they're... It's a weird thing of like the, the new cowboys. Yeah, uh, you know, it's or, like trendy Texas or something, the way that everybody wanted to be... Polynesian a decade before. But, um, you know, this is the Oscars where John Wayne wins for True Grit and beats all of this entire new crop of people who are competing with him. But I forgot that Dennis Hopper is actually in True Grit too. That in the same year Dennis Hopper makes this like landmark film about here's what the West looks like, a film where you feel like you could definitely imagine John Wayne grumbling about it. He gets to do a scene with John Wayne in True Git where he dies. It's kind of brutal. Let's listen to Dennis Hopper face off against John Wayne. It's a shame a kid like Moon losing his leg. Too young to be hopping around on a little peg. Loves to dance too much in sports. You trying to get at me again? I'm getting at you with the truth. We seen Ned Mays two days ago at McAllister's. You blowing, I'll kill you. I'm played out, Quincy. I gotta have a doctor. I'll tell what I know. I can't do a thing for you, son. Your partner's killed you, and I've done for him. Hey, don't leave me laying here. Don't let those wolves get me. Well, I'll see you get buried. Where's Ned Pepper? I mean, it's fascinating to hear those two acting styles just try to coexist, yeah. right? In the same movie. I mean, rah, 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 rah. That naturalistic thing that Dennis Hopper is talking about being the, you know, the best young actor in the game and, and going against somebody who's the most, not stiff, but it was appropriate for a time and things have shifted. You know, it's like, it is the passing of the torch and this movie, you know, really shows it. And it's so funny to think of these movies in the same time. You know, that's what kind of blows my mind. I wanted to bring up two things to you, Amy, um, before we get too far away from it. Um, just talking about, that scene that you played where they're talking to the farmer uh, and, you know, and Peter Fonda appreciates his life, but yet the farmer doesn't appreciate his life. He's like, I never got to the city, you know, and then I, and then you, you meet somebody else. I left the city, you know, and I can't leave the city. Like everybody in this movie is looking for freedom or what they thought freedom was, but never got to freedom. And it's in this idea of like constantly chasing in a weird way, like the American dream of like what it means to be fully independent or, but yet everyone is, is wrestling with not actually getting there. And I would argue our, our two main characters are also not quite there either because they can't just have a, a meal at a regular place. They, they have to go to where they're welcome. Like no one is quite comfortable where they are. And is that maybe the most insightful point of view on this movie like even though they are looking for freedom and they believe that they are the they are the voice of this they still they don't have it either like they have to sleep on the outskirts of town they're going to get beaten up they're going to get shot at you know it's like it nothing is good the grass always looks greener but once you're over there it, 
there it, no change has happened. Yeah, right. Or like even in even in the case of when they go to the commune, I mean, there's no grass at all. They talk about yeah. these these city kids who are trying to go crops there, and that they're starving, and that they're eating dead horses to survive. Yeah, and we're watching them basically. It looks like they're just throwing dust on dust, and you hear the disgust even in in Dennis Hopper's voice that this is not a way to live. This is not sustainable. These guys are going to die. Nothing but sand. Man, ain't gonna make it. Man, ain't gonna grow anything here. They're gonna make it. Dig. They're gonna make it. You know, Amy, we've been talking a little bit about like the West and Westerns. Um, I haven't seen this movie, so I'm throwing it to you. Jack Nicholson said that uh, Easy Rider is the stagecoach of bike movies. Would you agree with that? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a stagecoach exists to entertain and amuse the audience. And I feel like Easy Rider is here to do something else, right? It's here to mm. be cathartic or anger-inducing or as a, as a purge or or something that doesn't feel like we're here to put on a show, right? Because there's nothing right. at all, especially in Peter Fonda, about a character is putting on a show for us. There's nobody in right. here that's, 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 I feel like, aware of making a movie that's likable. I mean, this, this feels like... Uh, like if, if stagecoach just videoed the coach tracks they left behind in the mud and said, make up your own story. I mean, but if we're talking about like random artistic performance, what did you make of the fact that when they go to, to the compound and apparently Bridget Fonda is one of the little kids running around in that yes, compound I heard that. somewhere um, that they say that the people are practicing their mime troupe. But when the mime people show up, they're just like talking. That is absolute not mime. By the way, I pulled this clip. Uh, because it was so interesting uh, to me because I was like, this is a crazy moment. But I also feel like it's like a like a, you're peering through a window, too. It's like this is what art is behind this. Like, you know, this movie is, I think, as much as it is inaccessible or maybe to certain people at the time, it's also like, look at the freedom and look what we do here. But yes, that didn't seem like a mime group. But maybe the counterculture mimes can speak. Right? Maybe, Maybe that's man. the whole thing. Yeah. Do you know, do you know, do you want, do you want to know a mime fact? I just learned this last week when I watched this movie called Resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like probably most famous world mime in the world is Marcel Marceau, right? The guy's yes. like, I'm walking against the wind. And me. And you. Did you know Marcel Marceau was a Nazi resistance fighter? That he you know was in I World did War know, II? I, I knew a little bit about this because I was actually working on a project where... <laughs> I mean, it's a real, it's a real weird way, but I, I have Josephine Baker being a Nazi resistance fighter and we almost had Marcel Marceau be, uh, and yeah, so I know a little bit about it. It's pretty crazy, right? I had no idea. There's this Jesse Eisenberg movie that just came out where he plays a resistance fighter who like teaches, he's trying to get, um, some young Jewish children who've been orphaned to freedom and he teaches them how to be silent and become one with the tree so they can hide in the woods from the Nazis. Ugh. And at the end, it's like, and then he was Marcel Marceau. And I was like, what? <laughs> I had no idea. You know, I love that you're getting to see even the differences between all these groups of people. Like, we really do get a chance to go to all these different, like, lands in the United States. Like, we're, we're seeing how different people experience freedom or lack of freedom. And I thought it was really interesting. Did you notice that... Um, 
the opening scene uh, of the film, they're going across the Old Trails Arc Bridge, which is the same bridge that Peter Fonda went over as Tom Jode when he enters California in Grapes of Wrath. And I just thought that was an interesting idea. I didn't know if that was intentional. It feels to me like it kind of had to be to a certain Whoa. degree. That he and you his know, dad but, go over the same bridge? Yeah, you know, because I feel like these movies are also showing people that are displaced from society. Maybe I'm yeah. drawing too much of a comparison, but and trying to find the place where they can lay their head. You know, where is the place where they can set up their shop? And obviously they're, you know, trying to work within the system. They get kicked out of the system. They're going into these, they're meeting all these people. And there is such a similarity. I said earlier, Wizard of Oz, but I do believe there's something about Grapes of Wrath and this film and what it's saying about society, where society is. Uh, And I think of them, and it's so interesting that it's Peter and Henry Fonda kind of doing the yin and yang. This is 1940, this is 1970 or 1969. And you're seeing people go through America trying to fit into what the new America is. I love that. I mean, especially when you think that Peter Fonda was born, I believe the year that his dad made Grapes of Wrath, that there's this homecoming element to it. I mean, do you see any Sullivan's Travels in here too? The only thing I see in Sullivan's Travels is what I was saying to you a little bit earlier, which was like, is this a movie that is made by people who are living in Hollywood about a movement or these people that are actually living the movement. And I, and I feel like when it comes to Dennis Hopper, he's walking the walk. You know, I I feel like he is feeling this and I feel like all those stories are true. I think he's mellowed, uh, but he was this type of guy. He was able to, he was one foot in one foot out. I would say in many respects, he was the Peter Fonda, you know, and he's kind of like opening up the door. But again, I don't know. This is like, you know, these movies are so bizarre because they establish what the 60s were. And it's like, well, now I don't know. Is that because it's established because it's a movie or is that the way it was? You know, we know that in Grapes of Wrath, that's what it was. That's what these places look like. I don't know. I don't know what this is. And again, if we go back to that script thing, if it's a 12-page outline or not. I love the idea of Dennis Hopper like going around Hollywood, telling people he was going off to make this movie, being like, no, it's going to change the world. I'm going to really represent the way that things are. We got this. We got this. And people being like, he's being a real Sullivan, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, he is. And I think maybe because he doesn't have the success yet, he has more cachet to do that, right? Um, but maybe you're right. I, the guy, I was thinking about that really from like a point of view of, yeah, he is trying to tell this story. But in a weird way, he is telling a story that needs to be told, where Sullivan was telling a story that no one wanted to hear, ultimately. This movie That's is true. bringing people I mean, joy. This movie is a success. Like Hopper apparently definitely had this um, mission statement he kept telling people. He kept telling people that what we really need are good old American, not European art films. You, the way that Bonnie and Clyde was trying to like bring the French new wave here. Mm. He was appreciating it, but he's like, we need our own. We need to like plant yeah. the seeds in America for art films, which in a way, I don't know if I would say for sure yet one way or another, whether those seeds took or not. Maybe they took for a couple of years. Maybe they're like my parsley that I'm barely keeping alive right now in the kitchen. Uh-huh. It's like, all right, you get a month out of me. Maybe you get a decade of art films that are like whole grown American films. And then it recedes. You do get a unique voice. And I think this movie sets off the 70s when the 70s sets off these directors that influence everybody now, which is like, I am making the movie I want to make. I don't care if it's Mean Streets, if it's 
you know, if it's taxi driver, I'm going to tell these stories that, and I know I've just referenced Scorsese twice, but, uh, but you have a seventies voice that's coming out. I mean, I think, was it Peter Biskin wrote that book? Like, uh, is it uh, Raging Bulls, Easy uh, Riders? Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Yeah, that basically everybody interviewed in the book was like, that book is bullshit. Uh, you see, but again, like, who knows? <laughs> but I do think, but I do think there's something about like a, a lone voice telling a story that's important to them. And maybe that is helping get out. And you see like, and I, I hate to maybe bring it to this, but you look at somebody like even like Nia Vardalos, who makes a, you know, this is my story about my family that I want to tell about, you know, being Greek and getting married. And I know that that's like a very broad comedy, but no one had made a movie like that. And so people go see it. It's, it, it's, it's crazy rich Asians. It's like, it's catering a movie that's so personal that no one wants to make because it's like, well, who is that for? It's inaccessible, but no, it is accessible. And I think right now we're seeing that more than ever. Like these movies are still important, like these types of movies and whether they, you know, and, and to varying degrees of success. Oh, no, I can't believe I'm about to say what I'm about to say. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Green book? No, I know. I, oh, hey, 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 yeah. no, hey, no. Also a great road trip movie. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I know I'm going to sound like one of Sullivan's producers because, yeah, like when I go to Sundance right now, so many of the films are in that niche. Like, I need to tell mm. my story. I am a first-time director. This yes. is my story about my life. And I have to say, I wish there was a little bit more Nia Vardalos on it because none of them are entertaining. They're just there to be like, this is what it was. And I'm like, oh, what about some comedy, though? Right. Well, that's I mean, this is the problem with all things, right? Like you try to copy the idea of it. It's like this isn't Dennis Hopper's story. This is Dennis Hopper's passion. Right. And or, you know, to bring this idea to life, Peter Fonda and Terry Southern, they're telling a story. They're still making a movie, but informing it by their own opinions. And you can you can do that and be Christopher Nolan and 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 tell a story about Batman, but also be commenting on society it can still feel personal. I think what we lose is just write what you know, and then you're writing what you know, and you get these shitty mumblecore movies that are always just like monotonous. And I feel like this movie has elements of that. Look, the, the original cut was like five hours long, you know, and it started off with them as like, you know, uh, bull riders or whatever. They were performing in a stunt show, you know, it's like, and they cut it down. I think this movie is actually benefited by the editing like losing those four and a half hours or whatever they cut down um i know although apparently like it would have opened with us knowing that that um peter fund and dennis hopper are hollywood stuntmen which just makes me think of it's lame, of, um, it's lame. yeah but doesn't uh, it make you think of time what's in time in hollywood yeah, Holly, yeah i wrote that down i wrote down what's upon a time in hollywood I was like oh this has an, uh, there's elements of that there too this counterculture like when they're going to these communes that you know obviously it's also charlie manson's favorite movie Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know I love yeah. Charlie. <laughs> or the way uh, that you hear that they that they wonder if people are afraid of them because they are psycho killers. Because they yeah, look I mean, like Manson. Yeah, I mean, well, they, that's, those, yeah. yeah. Well, this is a perfect Charlie Manson movie. It's like they're afraid of us. We're living the life that they they don't want. You know, we have to take this away from them. We're trying to make them free. It's like, uh, you know, it's there's so many ideas here, and I think in you know again interpreted in the right the wrong way, and who's to say what's right and wrong, but it could be dangerous. I mean, and that's what we're talking about with Spike Lee. Is that a dangerous movie? Because he's actually just saying like, no, do the, throw a trash can through your local pizza shop windows. That's not what he's saying. He's showing something. He's not saying do it. <laughs> that's true. Although, you know, I have to say on this watch, you know, what really stuck out to me was how much this film was recalling the past, even though it was putting forward the future, recalling the Hollywood past, which, you know, mm-hmm. it seems like the Hollywood past was 
so far away and yet so near. That's the way that I feel about February right now. You know, I mean, this movie comes out in 69, like only maybe six years before Peter Fonda had been making ridiculous movies like this, like Tammy and the Doctor. Who's leaving the backwoods for the big city? Sandra D in Tammy and the Doctor. The irrepressible Tammy comes to Los Angeles to help out at a hospital. Well, help may not be the right word. I plum forgot to put back that jewelry. Peter Fonda is the young doctor with an acute case of lovesickness in this heartwarming and hilarious story of a naive girl from Mississippi who sets the world of modern medicine on its ear. <laughs> I mean, I guess wow. that's the reverse easy rider. Tammy leaves Mississippi to come to L.A. They leave L.A. and head towards Mississippi. And yet, you know, in here, I feel like they're paying so much homage to things that were only a decade, a decade older to them in Hollywood. I mean, when they go through Monument Valley in this movie, it feels like they're tagging it. You know, like, oh, yeah. John Ford, this is your Monument Valley. I'm a spray paint a dick on it. Or, well, maybe not a dick, maybe a pot leaf. Insert your own tag here. But Amy, let me say something that I've been thinking about. I think this movie talks a lot about freedom and and trying to get freedom. But is this a movie that is so kind of niche because it's so kind of aggressively white? I mean, this is, you know, this is a for a very small audience. Like you, you think of people of color and and they can have this experience. It's, it's almost like these white men who are straight, even though they're labeled as gay at a certain point in the film, can do whatever they want. They can kind of have this freedom. Like they have a luxury in embracing this freedom simply because they can kind of walk between these lines. And and I was thinking about that. And I was like, oh, this movie must not resonate with such a large group of people because it's a very unique point of view. And not to say that it needs to, but it, it's interesting that there's really, there's really no people of color. I mean, Mardi Gras, yes, but it's a very white movie. You know, it, it's um, even who they visit and who they talk to. Like, I would have loved to have seen a scene where they're talking to somebody who actually has a, a life experience that they can't escape from because of the color of their skin. No, you. I mean, you're right. Like, if they cut their hair and put on a suit, they could get into any restaurant they wanted to in the 60s. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, there's, I mean, well, since you popped the Green Book seal. Hmm. They do that same shot you have in Green Book, you know, where the car rolls by like, you know, a family of probably sharecroppers, I guess, who are black, who are working in the fields. And they like take a note like, OK, here is poverty. And then yeah. they they move on with it. Or, you know, that farmer has, you know, gosh, like half a dozen kids. And it looks like he's had them with a wife who is, you know, Hispanic. And it that that's to me that scene was a little weird just because he's like she's Catholic she has lots of kids and that girl looked like she was maybe twenty and mm. to have like six kids at twenty I don't know what that movie was doing with that scene it felt a little bit like I don't know if that scene was trying to postulate that it's rebellious for him to not marry a white woman and that makes him an ex I don't I don't know what that scene was for to be honest I found it kind of confounding I mean well that's again why I think this movie this movie is. An anomaly in the sense that I don't know if they knew what they were getting when they were getting it, but I think they edited it to a point where it became something that is important. You know, it's sort of like 
we'll shoot it all and we'll get it. It's very Nashville. It's very, I mean, or it's very Robert Altman, I should say. It's like, it's it, like, but instead of making it fat, like Altman, and it's not it, like they kind of, they really condensed it down to something that feels like there is a beginning, middle and end where I feel like the, probably the original intent was r- much more rambling and there are shots and things that didn't come back or did come back. You know, it just feels like this movie is saved by its runtime. I really feel like editing really found this movie and made things more important. And, and, and I don't know if there's always a reason for whatever happened on screen. And yet I could say it still feels a little long to me. You know, it's basically well, it's like aimless. they get on their bike, they play a song I really like, mm-hmm. or or they play songs that I think are so on the nose. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I, I guess I could forgive this film for basically inventing the way on the nose needle drop. If they did it first, they're off the hook. It is not right. as bad as Birds of Prey. But come on, when they do the drug deal and then like, don't you, you hear dare them being talk like, bad about Birds of Prey. OK, but then they have like they've got that song that's like, well, here, let's just listen to it. You know I smoked a lot of grass Oh Lord, I popped a lot of pills But I've never touched nothing mm-hmm, That my spirit could kill or then, I mean, maybe the one that's even worse is when they're around the campfire and Hopper, um, no, wait, Fonda gives Jack Nicholson a little bit of grief for holding onto the joint so long. And then they cut to the next scene and it's a song about bogarting joints. Don't bogart that joint, my friend. Pass it over to me. Did you ever see, you know, when this uh, this movie actually spawned uh, a very famous uh, television property? You ever see this? Remember the good old days? You know, war, protest. Going to jail. Well, man, we found this new album called Freedom Rock. It's got all those great songs we used to groove to back then. Amy, did you grow <laughs> up with this commercial on TV all the time? I, I, I grew think up with this. I did. <laughs> it wasn't. So what I was thinking about it was like, these are on the nose needle drops, but these are songs that have been like so jammed down our throats. Like, in 1969, they probably don't feel this. I mean, even though you're right, like they're naming what we just saw. They are like, they are the hits of the time. It just happens to be like this movie like cements it. And all of a sudden, like in 1985, there's the Freedom Rock commercial, which probably has every song on this fucking soundtrack, you know, and we're just like inundated with it. And now when you see a 70s movie, people are calling back that. And that's what I love about Quentin Tarantino when he does Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that soundtrack for the most part, with the exception of one or two songs are like different 70s songs and it's like i know what a relief what a relief it is (laughs) it's true i mean like robert criscow you know the amazing music critic who wrote for the village voice i mean Mm -hmm. he he talked about the soundtrack to this movie when it came out and he said that easy rider was what he called a quote the only film i know that not only uses rock well although that is rare enough but also does justice to its spirit and so that robert criscow thought this was fresh and interesting helps me get into the mindset of it but I have to admit, if we're talking about like wall-to-wall song tracks, 
Mm-hmm. I am more of a fan of something like The Graduate, where at least there's a sense of cohesion through it. Even though, but again, yes, The Graduate yeah. is actually a really well written movie. I don't think this movie is like a well written movie. I think this movie is a really good, interesting movie. But I don't think it's like The Graduate is like precise. Like it's like it's like clockwork. I mean, I know you, yeah, but you know, like I mean, like I think that it's in every move is intentional. Whether or not you like it, it is very. The shots are perfect. The you know the the images are. I don't know. I th- I think Mike well, Nichols is a very. Well, music is yeah. better. Yeah. Oh wow. All right. All right. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. You know, as we're talking about this loosey goosey nature of the screenplay, and and I'm I'm really shitting on the screenplay a lot, but this is how the story came to be, and I know we talked about this in the beginning, but I want to just add some more to it. So basically, the idea was that like. Dennis Hopper says they went to uh, Terry Southern's house because he had broken his hip and he like just dictated everything into a tape recorder. And then they all smoked, you know, joints and they all talked into his tape recorder. And then they, you know, and then Terry Southern said, I wrote it by himself. And then Fonda and Hopper are like, well, we didn't use that. We just kind of like, we just improvised it. And then they all saw the movie and then they were, and then <laughs> it's so dumb. And like Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper are like, whoa, this movie is great. We should get screenplay credits too because I think like this is us up there as well as a thank you. Did you hear this? Like that they kind of added themselves like retroactively. So if there, there's like, there was a script, there wasn't a script. And then it was like, we saw the movie and then we're like, oh, we should be the writers of this movie. It's it's a crazy story. I mean, I can't even make sense of the anecdotes I'm reading about it because it sort of seems like, it just seems that they were like, we want all the credit. Like fuck Terry Southern. Like we want to be in it, directing it. And writing it. Like, that's what it feels like to me. I mean, yeah, like Terry Southern uh, being the great quippy writer that he is. He said, quote, you know that if Don Hopper improvises a dozen lines and six of them survive the cutting room floor, he'll put in for screenplay credit. Now, it would be almost impossible to exaggerate his contribution to the film. But by George, he manages to do it every time. (laughs) (laughs) It's very Stallone. It's very Stallone. My my favorite favorite Stallone story is that um, he wanted to adapt the book that the movie Cobra was based on. And he reached out to the writer of the novel. He said, you know, we'll really release the book and we'll say by Sylvester Stallone on the book. Like, I was like, well, why? He's like, you know, because I adapted it into a movie. Like, But he wanted his name to be on the actual book. And like, when you look at every, like, I mean, his name is on everything that he does. Like, and I just can't see like Stallone, like clop, 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 control, alt, save. Like, I just, I feel like he goes in there and he goes, uh, Wait, he's a this- horse? I'm sorry. Did you give him horseshoes when he walked? That was my, that was my amazing, uh, look, I'm being a mime. I'm showing you how I type, you know, mimes. They like, clop, 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 clop. Wow. An audio mime podcast. You're really, you're breaking boundaries here, Paul. It's the quarantine, <laughs> baby. I got to expand what I can do. <laughs> I mean, I do think Hopper gets some credit for kind of pranks he pulled on people while they were directing it. Like, apparently, you know that scene where they go into the diner and all the men are, like, really rude? Like, the young girls are like, we like him and we're girls Mm -hmm. and we like these rebellious men. And the men are immediately on site like, fuck these dudes. We want to kill them. These guys suck. Uh, Apparently, what Dennis Hopper did is he told all those guys who were non-actors that in the scene before this, uh, that Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson had just raped and murdered a girl. And so that way they could channel the anger at a crime oh, wow. into the way they made fun of them, the way they improvised them, and that they wouldn't, and that it'd be easier for them to come up with the lines, which in a way is smart, but in a way it also kind of 
I'd argue it's the, terrible, but go ahead. Yeah, it de- it defangs a bit of the, what the movie's trying to say. I mean, if the if the movie's whole point is that these rebels are, you know, the good guys, and even though they look scary, it's the only dangerous people are these rednecks who beat them up, who kill Jack Nicholson, who kill all three of them randomly in the course of forty eight hours. And it's also kind of amazing how quickly they leave Jack Nicholson. Like that's Dennis Hopper going, like, all right, man. He would want us to have a good meal. Like, let's get out. Like, that death seemingly doesn't affect Dennis Hopper. And I feel like that death is actually, like, pulling Peter Fonda maybe back onto the side of, like, I want to be in a normal world again. Yeah, Jack Nicholson's death is so bizarrely handled to me, honestly, if we can be honest about it. Yeah. Like, because it comes right after he gives that beautiful speech. You know, the speech that absolutely just sums up this Love movie. This, yeah. You know... This used to be a hell of a good country. I can't understand what's going on with it. Man, everybody got chicken, that's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into like a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? Don't they think we're gonna cut their throat or something, man? They're scared, man. Well, they're not scared of you. They scared of what you represent to them. Hey, man. All we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. And then that's it for him. You know, he goes to yeah. sleep. He's beaten up in the middle of the night. You have... A little a nice moment that when Hopper realizes they've all been attacked, he goes over to Fonda to make sure Fonda's okay. But then Nicholson's this afterthought. And then they take his money. They spend it on a nice meal. They say they'll let his family know. You realize his family will never get to know ever. His yeah. family will never know what happened to him. He just and, disappeared. Yeah. And it's not so much even that I'm expecting like Hopper to be too broken up about his death or anything. But the movie doesn't seem to let us have any weight to his death. You know, I don't yeah. feel his death the way that they handle it. He's just in the sleeping bag and he goes on. And maybe you could say that they're trying to do that intentionally. But I feel like it's a bit of an emotional miss for me, especially because Jack Nicholson's so good in this. I totally, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. And then also while we're talking about it, I mean, I can get why the men in the restaurant think they can get away with beating Jack Nicholson to death because they seem law or law adjacent in a small town. But mm. what about these freaking dudes in the truck, man. They're not law. They're just shooting him. How on earth do they think they're getting away with this? Like well, that yeah, that's a I mean, straight up cold-blooded in the middle of the day murder. I don't understand why that would even happen. I mean, well that that is kind of like the heightened nature of like it, I I think that this movie lives in a plane of like reality. I think this movie lives outside a plane of reality. Right. I think it's more about what they represent and these people will take them down. And like, yes, they were both gunned down, but I don't think that that's like real. I don't think that people are like, you know, skeet shooting uh, hippies. 
I just think it's like they will always be chased. They will always be beaten. And if it's not today, it's the next day. It's it doesn't it doesn't make a difference. They're just never going to be accepted in society. And the end is more of like a metaphor. Like the movie could go on forever. Like they don't need to die tomorrow. But it's it's like Tony Soprano. How you view the end of that show? It's like he's always going to be looking over his shoulder. He's always going to hear that door. You get to see his perspective for one moment. But that's how he lives his life, knowing that at any moment. You know, so they'll never be free. No matter where they go, they will never truly be free because there's someone out there that will take them down in a moment where they are doing simply nothing but being, I mean, at that moment, totally free. Is it okay if I still don't think I like the ending? Um, I mean, can, it's abrupt. I just, yeah. yeah, it's. I think it's a notch more metaphorical than I find the film to be as a whole. And I, I'm trying not to run it through my logical filter. Like, absolutely, it can exist on this alt-world plane. But it just feels, maybe it's the part of me that is Southern a little bit. You know, it, it, maybe I am the rip torn in this, being like grabbing my Nike and being like, oh, come on, you jerk. No, that's not right. exactly how this would go. Or uh, Well, I mean, it, it definitely it, it feels just a little bit easy. like the Maybe end that's of, it. It just it, feels easy. Like, don't you oh, see we the can't similarity? end it. They die. Yeah. But don't you see the similarities between this and like Taxi Driver 2 to a certain extent? Like the end of Taxi Driver, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, okay. Like it just sort of like it, it needs to end. And I think, I don't know. I don't mind the ending. It's abrupt. It's kind of crazy. It doesn't make any sense in the grand scheme of things. Like it's sort of like, oh, okay, uh, sure. Um, but what else is left in the movie at that point? Like to me, I'm like, right. I felt like the movie's over. So let's just fucking kill him. Maybe it's just like the 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 peril of when you try to figure out how to absolutely break format of a novel, mm. of a narrative. Like if you absolutely shatter any sort of what narrative is, then you can't come up with an ending because you don't really believe in them because you don't really believe in arcs or plot points clearly in the entire movie up to date. So you can't put a cap on it's like trying to put a cap on like a jello waterfall or something. They're like, I don't know. Yeah. So they just have the waterfall go off the cliff and they're like, as good as anything else, which is fair. But I, I reserve the right to find it slightly unsatisfying. No, well, I mean, well, let's, we're, we're here now. I mean, let's talk about it. Like, I know we're going to going a little bit out of order, but what do you think? Does this movie belong on the list? Oh, gosh. You know, I'm I'm surprised that it's so low at 84 because I would have mm. thought, given how we've how we have extrapolated about the AFI voters being older and loving their friends, I would have guessed it'd be higher because it feels like such a landmark film for that generation that they would love it more. But if they're willing to keep it in the 80s, then fuck it, get it off there. Who cares? Right. Is that okay? I'm just gonna. No, say that. I, I no, yeah. I think I know. I I don't think that you're wrong. Like, I really like what this movie does, right? And as far as the doors that it opens, um, I think it obviously has become such a large part of our world. Um, you know, from that commercial I played to you to, you know, yes, just starting with that commercial you played. Start, yeah. commercial. But you know, like there's so many, there, there's so many references to this. Like, for example, like I got a joke in Fletch for the first time from seeing this. Like there's a moment like in Fletch where he's like playing some sort of character. And he's like, ha, ha. and I was like, oh, that's Jack Nicholson, you know, reacting uh, or is it Jack Nicholson or Dennis Hopper re reacting to like when they're getting high, like they do like a, a whole thing. I'm like, oh, that's I've laughed at that a million times. I didn't realize that that's from Easy Rider. Like, you know, 
Well, um, let's actually play that because I want to play that clip for you because what I love about that moment when he, right before he makes the noise, is he leads everybody in a toast and he leads them in a toast to motherfucking Lawrence of Arabia, to D.H. Lawrence. Here's the first of the day, fellas. To old D.H. Lawrence. Indians. Wait, maybe I have a theory now. Of where, like, maybe I have a theory of why those men in the truck just shoot them. Are you mm-hmm. ready for this? Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have Jack Nicholson explaining that there are aliens who have walked the earth since 1946. Oh, I love this. Okay. And that these aliens want that in their own in their own alien land they have established basically a workable social socialist system where everybody has enough actually socialist isn't even fair to call it i was saying socialist because it's a system where everybody has enough but each man is actually able to take care of himself enough to also okay. be able to be provided for to have food and that they all seem like this sounds like a complete pipe dream like a stoner dream that they could live in a society where everybody is equal and has comfort and feels provided for so maybe because Jack Nicholson says these aliens are here and that our leaders are oppressing it because of the shock to the system. Maybe those men in trucks are actually working for the government. And now that Jack Nicholson has passed on the information about how the planet works, they just have to take them out. Maybe all rednecks are actually aliens or government agents who know about the aliens. And that is why after this conversation, they all have to die. Now, Amy, as you're saying that, I see you on Zoom and you are smoking a joint. So totally get it. <laughs> totally right there with you. Um, no. Uh, yeah. Uh, by the way, I think that you like that is a speech that only uh, Dennis Hopper or Jack Nicholson could give. I, I, I love it. I'm, I'm on board with your theory. Um, and you want it off the list. I'm going to say I think it needs to stay on because it's just a movie that is bigger than what it is. It's bigger than then I don't know. Easy Rider is a part of like, when you think of the biggest movies of our American culture, it's there. Is it one of the best movies that we've seen on this list? Absolutely not. Does it go lower for me? Probably. But what it does is so influential. But I also believe if I'm to buy my own line of bullshit and go, well, this movie started like a very strong independent idea and making really small films. We have so many independent white male voices on this list. Uh, I would argue, I would like to see Hollywood shuffle or something like that, you know, or, I mean, that's kind of a crazy boys in the hood, yeah. boys in the hood. Yeah. Like I would love to see like another perspective of this, but I love how it that's holds hands fair. with grapes of wrath, you know? So I, I go back and forth. And, and I would if- say, I don't know. I, I would say like of our sixties films and you do not agree with me on this, I believe, but still my favorite of the films we've watched that have kicked off new Hollywood is still Bonnie and Clyde. And I would get yeah. rid of pretty much all of them for Bonnie and Clyde. I would just keep Bonnie and Clyde and then make room. See, I was so amped to see Bonnie and Clyde that I was expecting so much from it Mm -hmm. that I feel feel like that movie would have served me better later on in the show Uh, because I think I was like, this is going to be amazing. And it was. It just didn't didn't flip flip me. Although great performances, I still think about it. Um, I think that's fair. But if we're talking about things that, you know, were influenced by Easy Rider, I think we have to play a clip of... um, (laughs) <laughs> of a uh, infomercial made by Peter Fonda called Not So Easy that was here mm. to promote motorcycle safety for all the kids who were picking up motorcycles after they saw Easy Rider. I remember me. A while ago, I made a film called Easy Rider. 
Well, I'm here to say it's not so easy. I'm Peter Fonda. I've ridden bike for quite a few miles. Quite some time, too. It's a great way to get around. It's a good sport if you know what you're doing. If you don't know, it can be a quick ride to the hospital or even the graveyard, which are two good reasons why you should watch and listen to what this film has to say. Here's another friend of mine, Ryder Evil Knievel. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. And then, of course, if we're talking about influence, we have to talk about the Albert Brooks film Lost in America. Okay. Which was like, it was kind of the 80s version of is this dream kind of nonsense. And you have Albert Brooks and, um, oh, what is the name of this actress? I love her. And she was just in Marriage Story. Julie Haggerty. Julie Haggerty. Oh, Thank yes. you, Devin. Thank you, Devin. Uh, playing a, a kind of yuppie couple who want to try to see if they can live the easy rider dream. And so they like put everything in, into um, getting this like Winnebago and driving around the country and realizing yes, that I it's nonsense. And they don't agree on how it stands. Um, Here is right after Julia's lost all their money gambling. And let me tell you something. That's not how you drop out anyway. If you're really going to drop out, you drop out with nothing. Oh, you do. Well, where did you read that? The Las Vegas guy? I didn't read it. Friends told me. People who know. You don't know anybody who knows. You don't know anybody who ever dropped out except for us. All what are you right, talking about? Right. Well, the movie you're basing your whole life on, Easy Rider, they had nothing. They had no nest egg. Bullshit. They had a giant nest egg. They had all this cocaine. That's not true. It is true. Linda, they sold cocaine. I mean, do you want me to keep playing this forward and talk about wild hogs? I mean, we have to. We mentioned it already. So, and I mean, and I know that Peter Fonda shows up in Wild Hogs. So, let's do it. Oh, we'll do it. We'll do it. But before we do, I have a surprise torture for you. Uh oh. Um. So you were really upset when we did our big live show on YouTube about the age gap between mm-hmm. um between the older woman and the man that she thinks is younger is her age, Tom Hanks. But have you heard of a Peter Fonda movie called Wanda Nevada? No, I have not. Oh, let me tell you about Wanda Nevada. This comes out 10 years after Easy Rider. The plot of Wanda Nevada is that uh, Peter Fonda wins a girl uh, at a card game. They go on the road together and they fall in love. The girl in question, Peter Fonda being 39, I believe, when he made this movie, played by 13-year-old Brooke Shields. Whoa. And this is her telling him that she's in love with him. Do I want? Always have. Honey, I must be 20 years older than you. Don't you see? I might not be a woman yet, but I ain't never done anything to hurt you. There we go. I hear, you know, look, problematic all the time. <laughs> all right, but yes, um, this is Wild Hogs. This is right at the end of the movie when they are in Madrid, the town that I told you I went to in New Mexico. Highly recommend going to Madrid and getting the chili burger. It's incredible. Um, and at the very end, you have the Hawks having a showdown with Ray Liotta when Ray Liotta's dad shows up, played by none other than Peter Fonda. Bar burned down. Yeah. These posers, these four posers right here. Four guys stand off. 50 bikers. And they're the posers. Yeah. They burnt down the bar that you built. It was a shithole. I insured it for twice what it was worth. The guys did me a favor. We're just following the code that you wrote. Why do you think I don't wear the colors, Jack? Why do you think I ride alone? You don't know about it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then after he dresses down his own son, he goes over to the wild hogs and he gives them some life advice. What do you guys call yourselves? I'm what do you, Bob, Doug. No, no, you all ride together? Yeah. What do you, what do you call hogs. Wild, wild, wild hogs. Wild, yeah, wild, wild hogs. hogs. <laughs> well, wild hogs, ride hard or steal. Yeah. Poor guys, lose the watches. Lose the Yikes. watches. Lose the watches. <laughs> of course, right? I mean, oh boy, got that's what they did, man. That's what they did. Oh, that makes me depressed. Um, how did people react to this movie? Obviously, um, I can imagine that there are people who didn't get this. I mean, this is a movie that I can easily see people being furious about. They dug it. I mean, one of the people who did not dig it so much was somebody actually more powerful than a film critic. It was Spiro Agnew who went on like a whole crusade talking about how um, the art and culture of 1969 was problematic. And he didn't always call Easy Rider out by name, but he was calling it out, as you can hear here. In answer to the attacks of these dissenters, the vice president states. And if the hippies and the yippies and the disruptors of the systems that Washington and Lincoln as presidents brought forth in this country will shut up and work within our free system of government, I will lower my voice. He straight up tells the hippies to shut up, which is, to be fair, not really Peter Fonda's problem in this movie. This is the Tipper Gore of its time, you know, right? Coming after rap music. Uh, <laughs> um, it's true. But of the critics, uh, one of the critics who really didn't like it that much, he gave it a mixed negative review, was our buddy Vincent Canby of the New York Times. Mm. Um, he called it a motorcycle drama with decidedly superior airs. He felt he was kind of rankled by this. And he said, <clears throat> right away, you know that something superior is up, that somebody's making a statement. And you can bet your boots, cowboy, black leather, that it's going to put down the whole rotten scene. What scene? Who's? Why? Man, I can't tell you if you don't know. What I mean to say is, if you don't groove, you don't groove. And then he calls the characters in the film, quote, bizarre comic strip characters with occasional balloons over their heads reading, like you're doing your thing or some such. Suddenly, however, a strange thing happens. There comes on the scene a very real character, and everything that has been accepted earlier as a lyrical sense of impression suddenly looks flat and foolish. And from here, he raves about Jack Nicholson. He loves Jack Nicholson in this movie. And then he says that Nicholson is so good, in fact, that Easy Rider never quite recovers from his loss, even though he has had the rather thankless job of spelling out what I take to be the film's statement, parenthetical, uppercase. And then he points out that when it did win an award at Cannes for Best um, First Time Director, that there was only one other picture competing against it, so that it had like a 50-50 shot of winning. Oh, wow. And then he says that with the exception of Nicholson, the good things in Easy Rider are just familiar things. The rock score, the lovely, sometimes impressionistic photography by Laszlo Kovacs, the faces of small-town America, and that these things dazzle the senses, if not the mind. And then he just says... You know, Hopper and Fonda and their friends went out into America looking for a movie, and they found instead a small, pious statement, uppercase, about our society, uppercase, which is sick, uppercase, and that it's pretty, but lowercase cinema. You know, look, if you're talking about a movie like Dr. Strangelove, that is definitely saying something. I think Sullivan's Travels is saying something. All these movies are making a point. This is probably the sloppiest point. It's the most like broad stroke point, right? Would you agree with that to a certain degree? But I think yeah, I mean, it's, about it's it teenage. Is, it's like, they don't get yeah. us, man. And to me, you know, honestly, 
maybe I would swap this movie out for Rebel Without a Cause or something. Like, mm. we don't have Rebel Without a Cause. Like, yeah, if we're going to do be- one of these, like, movies, at least bump it up a little bit. Put James Dean on the list so we can really see him. I like and not that. just the people like who worship him. Yeah. yeah. All right. I buy that. And uh, Amy, is there Simpsons? Is there Simpsons? Well, of course there I mean, is, of course my there dear is. friend. But there's only one Simpsons, which, oh, is, wow. which really? is strange. Yeah. This is from a fairly recent episode, even called uh, Three Scenes Plus a Tag from a Marriage. And in this movie, uh, or oh, wow. in this episode of The Simpsons, Marge and Homer go on a date to the movies and they see a movie called Queasy Rider that stars oh, Krusty the Clown. Um, okay. The beginning of this is silent, um, but I just want you to picture. Images like Krusty riding on a motorcycle, Krusty going to Mardi Gras, Krusty making out with chicks, Krusty caressing and wow. sobbing on a statue in a graveyard, and Krusty drawing a peace sign in the sand. Young hearts can go that way. Can't put it out another day. I don't care what others say. They think we don't listen anyway. Hey, some of us are trying to enjoy the movie. No, none of us are. At least I died before I'm 30! Yes, he was 47 when he made this film. (laughs) I love that. Ah, well, that is easy, Ryder. I mean, if I can say one pretentious thing, because I think this movie does put you in the headspace of getting pretentious because there's just room for you to insert your own imagination and let it kind of smoke around there. Yeah. I mean, you know, when they're at the campfire and there's all those moths floating around, I yeah. kept thinking that those moths were like visually symbolic. And maybe it's just because I'm unused to seeing moths in films because usually, I guess it's a controlled environment where they don't have random moths in the scene, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But seeing all these visible moths, I was like, man, moths are like when you have old Renaissance paintings and there's like soap bubbles in the paintings and the soap bubbles are supposed to represent how all images are just moments in time and it's life and death or in still lives when there's, you know, a lobster lying out on a table. It's supposed to represent how everything goes bad and rots eventually. And I was like, that's what those moths are doing, man. Those moths are showing us that time's fleeting, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what it, I mean, but that's what this movie feels like. This movie feels like you are getting high and just like, that's what we're in. You know, it's like, and I feel like that's, this movie captures it better than most. And I think most people ape it and I don't think do a good enough job with it. This feels like it's real. This feels like a movie where they were getting high on set and shooting those scenes, which they were. They didn't do LSD because they didn't afford. They couldn't afford it. But um, why LSD so cheap? That's what I thought too. When they said they couldn't afford it, who knows? Yeah. Uh, maybe in New Orleans it was hard to get. But I do feel like there's some there's a there's a reality to this movie that is uh, that is kind of unparalleled, and that's what I kind of go to. And that, and and and. I popped up from the Mardi Gras scene to the end. It, like, I guess maybe from the, once they leave the town from that restaurant to the end, it really felt like, oh, now we're, now we're in something. Now we're doing something. And there's, and I, I don't know. I was, uh, that's the point that really grabbed me. Yeah, I could feel it. I mean, it, in a way you're agreeing with Canby or yeah. ish. You're like, it got alive for a little bit when Jack Nicholson was there and his accent being like the main thing that helps us know that we have made it further further south and further uh, east than we were for a long time. 
And by the way, Jack yeah. Nicholson playing like a square. I mean, it's funny that his performance is so spoken about. It's an anti-Jack Nicholson performance. It's not like the traditional way that we're used to seeing him. You know, he's a little bit more of a, yeah, a square yeah. compared to these guys. I love that he's um, an ACLU lawyer, though, because that kind of yeah. implies that he is at least engaged with politics on the right yeah. side. If you're an ACLU lawyer in the 60s, you're definitely working on cases about racial discrimination. And I By appreciate way, that. A- a- ACLU is amazing. I went to their big benefit this year and it was one of the most mind-blowing, like a positive life affirmative things to see all these people working their asses off to protect our rights. They're amazing. I love the ACLU. Can um, I ask you a question as we yeah. say goodbye, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you've been spending a little bit of time with Jane Fonda because mm-hmm. you've been engaged in the Fire Deal Fridays, which is so mm-hmm. cool. I mean, what do you think is up with this Fonda clan? Like, why? How have they managed to have this hold on the American image of who we are? Um. Oh wow. You know, I don't know if I have the exact answer to that. You know, there's something that Don Cheadle said one time, and I love this idea. And and it's it's kind of crossing his idea with somebody else, which is like. He said, you know, when you're in a when you're in a world where a spotlight is on you, it is your job to take that spotlight and turn it onto the people who are less fortunate um, and that are not getting the, the light shined on them. And I feel like there is something about this family from the top to the to the bottom that is about that. It's about showing the people that don't get shown. It's sticking up for the people who aren't defended. It is, it is the, the counter, it's the, it's the path less chosen for what we're meant to be seen. And I feel like, you know, you grow up in a family and, and I know that there's so many stories about that family and I, I don't want to, not that I can speak to it in any, any real way, but I feel like that's the lasting legacy of this family is like, Let's tell these stories. Let's be that. And you can do that as 12 Angry Men. You can do that as Grapes of Wrath. You can do that as Easy Rider. You can do that as Fire Drill Fridays. Like you can be a voice for the voiceless. And uh, and if that's the staying power of this family, that that's what it is. And and I think it's telling those stories and 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 doing these things. I don't know. That's what I would I say. Like I don't that. know. I don't know what it is, but I just I know that like now raising children of my own, it is about just talking about these issues. My parents never talked about issues with me. You know, talk about who they were voting for president occasionally in a cagey way, but we didn't talk about issues, you know, and I feel like you got to instill this in your kids and, you know, it's important. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. (laughs) All right, everybody. Well, I think that now makes it time for us to talk about next week's episode. Eh? We are going to be doing a little ditty called Cabaret, a 1972 movie with Liza Minnelli, with Joel Gray, with Michael York, the man who looks most like a lion out of anybody I've ever seen in my life, except for Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Um, and I feel like this one, being that it is a musical, it is a good one to bring back an old unspooled sing-along. What do you think? I want to hear people singing, Amy. <laughs> All right, let's pick the song. Let's pick the first song. Let's have everybody right. be their best Joel Gray and sing Welcome, Bienvenue, to welcome our episode into Cabaret. Um, I love it. Get let's your singing voice it. on. If you want to do a German accent, all the better. Um, by the way, Paul is putting a Clippers face on his face right now with his Zoom filter, so it's a little bit hard to concentrate yep, we on are remembering recording. our own phone number. But our phone number is 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Give us your best German cabaret MC singing welcome. 
And uh, we would love to hear it. And by the way, uh, I've been doing this thing. I told uh, you guys about this uh, last week by beginning out a nightly pick of a movie that you should watch or that you would enjoy. Amy's helped me out uh, once or twice on this one. I'm just basically just texting you a, a daily movie reminder. So you could use it. You could not use it. You can text me at 917-877-0657. It's totally free. There's no data mining going on here. It's just simply like a new version of social media. And I actually am up on it. I'm not like some of the other celebrities on this thing. I'm looking at you, J-Lo, who doesn't respond. I get in it. I try to get on, on, on board. 917-877-0657. And if you don't want to do that, you can just check my website at paulshear.com where I'm keeping a list of every movie that I've recommended so far. If you're out of uh, ideas where you just need a little bit of inspiration. I'm like the, the guy who works at Blockbuster. I was the guy who worked at Blockbuster. Now I'm just doing it here. So Did you sometimes... really work at Blockbuster? Oh, yeah, Amy. I worked That's at Blockbuster so cool. for a long time. Yeah, it was the best. A little polo shirt? Yeah. Oh, I did the whole thing. I mean, I worked at Blockbuster for, God, like four years. I got pictures of it. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I One time I'll tell you, uh, I, I fear that people may have already heard the story, so I won't, but don't go totally into it. But I set up a fake autograph session with Jamie Gertz. It was not the actual Jamie Gertz. It was just a girl who looked like Jamie Gertz. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, just a little thing that was fun. My Blockbuster was Natalie Portman's Blockbuster. And it was also... Uh, Play from Kid and Play's Blockbuster. So, I love Play. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, he's great. Whoa. Play, I mean, I feel like Play has the most raw, natural screen charisma of almost anybody I've ever seen in the movie house party. He is great. He's very good. You know, and I just actually recently worked with Play. Uh, so very, and I'll tell you all about that later on. It's all oh, fun I, stuff. I was thinking of Kid. I really, I, I'm sorry. I screwed that By up the in way, my head, but okay. I, I work with I work with Kid as well. I work with Kid three times in my career. <laughs> Sincerely, three times. He is a lovely, lovely dude. Um, the worst thing I ever worked with on Kid was it was a um, <laughs> it was a show called Make My Day, and you'd create this amazing fantasy world for an unsuspecting person, and then at the end of the day, you had to reveal that it was all not a it was a prank, but it was a positive prank. It was tough, uh, but he was so so good. It was just hard for the people to always adapt to the fact that they had a great day. And then it was like, it was all a fucking bit, you dummy. Uh, so, <laughs> but uh, play was great. First time I ever met him was at Caliente Cab Company in New York City. I made him sign my menu uh, and it was great. Wow. Good I appreciate dude. that I have learned all of this about you while you were still dressed like a basketball. So thank you very <laughs> much for this. All right. We will see you next week for Cabaret and we will see you this Monday for, oh my gosh, I'm so excited, for the unspooled Pool, spool Party Part 2 Clueless on YouTube on the Earwolf YouTube channel uh, that is uh, Monday the 13th at 8.30pm Eastern Standard Time 5.30pm Pacific Standard Time tune in and watch us live or just watch us whenever you want like you can watch the big one right now Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.